Over the last several weeks, we have been slowly, a few verses at a time, been working through Isaiah chapter 40. This morning, we will be looking at and focusing on verses 9 through 17. The words will be on the screen, or you may look them up in your pew Bibles on pages number 712 going into 713. Again, on pages number 712 to 713, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 17. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As many of you know, uh, this past summer, at the end of it, my family and I had the opportunity to do some traveling and we went into, uh, drove through Southern California into the deserts of Nevada and then spent some time in Northern Arizona around Lake Powell, went to Zion National Park and then to Bryce Canyon National Park. And the reason why many of you know that is because of the pictures. I got posted online and shared and many of you commented on those pictures and what we had the opportunity to experience and see. And yet, as nice as those pictures are, and as much as I appreciate technology and the opportunity to share our experience with other people, once again, we learn that lesson that all of us have learned over and over again, is just that the pictures don't do the reality justice. There is no way you can capture in your little viewfinder of your phone what it was like to hike the trail and then get to the end of that and just see the wide canyon open in front of you with the steep, colorful mountains on both sides as you look down at the beauty of this valley in all of its nature and glory. 
And there's literally pictures that we tried to take, but it wouldn't. The sky at night with all of the stars and the colors there, they just would not be able to be captured in a photograph. But again, I'm so grateful for those pictures because it helps. At least it gives a little tiny taste. Because without those, if people asked, what was it like? What did you see? It would be impossible to find the words to truly and adequately to describe what it was that we experienced. Well, that impossibility of describing something so undescribable falls into the category of what we see Isaiah trying to do in the text that we are reading for this morning and focusing on. But before we get to that particular text, let's kind of catch ourselves up and remind us where we are and what's been going on in Isaiah chapter 40. We first of all remember the situation and the people that Isaiah is addressing in this context. They are a nation that had the special privileges and promises and honor of God, knowing him and being called his people, giving, uh, having been given a land where they could thrive and grow and serve him and be a light to the other nations. And yet they could not help but realize that they had failed in that mission. That they had fallen far short in their part of the covenant. They had disobeyed, sinned against God, rebelled against him. And as a result, just as God had promised, their enemies had destroyed them. Their capital had been totally burnt down, destroyed. The temple was in ruins and they had been sent into exile, dispersed among the great Babylonian empire. And in that situation, they were asking all kinds of questions about their future and about their relationship with God. Had the covenant promises been null and void because of their actions? Or was there a hope? And into that situation, Isaiah 40 brings this wonderful word of comfort. A promise that their sins had been paid for and that God was going to provide a way back not only to the physical land that they had once lived in, but more importantly, back into a right relationship with him. And as incredible as those promises sound, they knew they could trust in him because they were not the opinion of the prophet, but the very word of God, which is always reliable as we highlighted last week. We've also been highlighting the fact that not only were these prophecies a word of comfort to those people in that time, but how much more comfort it brings to us as we see the ultimate fulfillment of all of those promises in the very word of God, Jesus Christ himself, and how he was the one that was being pointed to ultimately in all of these texts. But if, as we said last week, that this was reliable because it was the very word of God, the reason why that was reliable was not just because he said it, but because of the person and the character of the God that stood behind those words. And that's where we get to the, to the impossible challenge of Isaiah. His great hope is to try to describe to these people the greatness, the power, the glory, and the majesty of our God. And yet, there are no words that can be acceptable. 
There's no thing that we could compare our God to that can help us to understand. And so he does his very best in this text to paint a little bit of a picture, to give a tiny little glimpse to get us to try to begin to comprehend the greatness of our God. It's almost like when you try to imagine the concept of eternity. You go back as far as your mind can go before creation and a billion years before that. And then realize that God was existence a billion years before that. And he will be as far, farther than we can even imagine. Our mind is blown. You can't think of it. And so how do you get to think about the greatness of our God? So in trying to do that, he, he comes up with the best analogies he can. And he starts by thinking about creation. And yes, there's nothing in creation that compares to our God. But there are things in creation that just awe us and inspire us. And so maybe we can't contemplate how big our God is. But he can call to mind as he does what it's like for many or most of these people to have stood at the shore of a sea. And you look out, and as far as your eye can see, there is only water and the power behind that water. And you wonder, how far could I sail before I found anything? And what is out there? How deep is this water? And how much of a life is underneath those waters? In all of what I can see. And they can imagine what it's like to stand and picture the ocean. Can you picture it? And then he goes the other directions. From the depths of the sea, he calls them to think about the heights of mountains. These people lived in a mountainous area. They knew mountains well. And they knew them because they had to walk over them many, many times. And they could think of all of those difficult mountains that they would have to climb up and go into. The fun ones they had the opportunity to explore. But what is more is the other ones that they couldn't get up. The ones whose peaks reached to the very clouds themselves at times. And as they looked at those great majestic mountains, the questions, the awe that filled their minds. How high does that go? What would it look like or could a human ever get to the top of that mountain? And what lays beneath it? In all of the, the material that make up that mountain, how grand, how huge is it? So Isaiah calls the mountains to mind. Again, I ask, can you imagine it? And then he encourages them to think about the skies. Like us, they would stay up past the setting of the sun and the, the campfires would go out and then they would just look up. And this is where they have an advantage over us because we have all the light pollution to deal with that they did not have. And so you can only imagine for us the incredible number of little lights that they would see filling the vastness of the sky. And as far as your eye could turn once again, it's nothing but all of these incredible lights. And you try to again imagine how far is it from that star over there 
to that star over there. And again, can you call it to mind? And then Isaiah says, as much as you imagine the incredibleness of the size of the sea standing at its shore with all of the water, that that's all that you can see, that our God is so big and so great that he can hold all of that water in the hollow of his hand. Now again, God is not a creature that actually has physical hands. This is a, an amorphification of God. I stumbled over that word, but you English teachers know what I'm meaning. But it's that idea that if he had hands, he is so great that all of that water could be contained right there. That as great and big as those mountains were, that you cannot scale in all of their, their substance, weight, and vastness. That God has thrown those on a scale. And he could tell you exactly how high it is and how much lays underneath those mountains because he put it there. And as big as the sky is from star to star, the text says that he can measure the heavens in, the, in a span. That span is the distance between your thumb and your forefinger. That's that distance in comparison to the greatness, the vastness, the bigness of our God. And what is more... The reason he is so big and so powerful is because he created all of that. He put it in its place. He, from the Nile River to the Mediterranean Sea, from the peaks of Mount Everest to the great sequoias that grow in our region, God designed each one of those, and he didn't have to consult somebody else, get the opinion or the idea or learn from other people. He knew exactly how far the sun needed to be away from the earth. He knew and designed in such an incredible way that animals exhaust carbon dioxide and take in oxygen and plants do the completely reverse, taking in carbon dioxide and producing oxygen. And it balances itself out in an incredibly majestic way that he designed without reading textbooks, searching Google, or having the opinion of other people. That's how big our God is. The words, the pictures, they fail. And so he moves on not only from creation, but he says, well, well what about other things you might be able to relate to? And he, he considers also, in some ways, the best words I can uh, politics, nation states, and how big they were. Once again, the Israelites didn't need a reminder of the might, the power, and the strength of Babylon. This was when the empire of Babylon was at its highest. It was the epitome of culture. It was a beautiful city with all kinds of advances and technology. They were the height of culture, and no one could stand against them. Again, the Israelites learned that firsthand. Their might was nothing in comparison to the Babylonians. And yet God says, as powerful as Babylon is, they are like the dust on a scale. The stuff you, you wipe away before you actually measure something to weigh it out. 
And it's a reminder that God is before any one of those nations. He remembers the building of the pyramids. He's seen the advances of the internet. And he's watched all of those empires rise and fall. But he still exists. He is bigger, he is beyond, he is greater than the might of any nation state or political power that we can imagine. And then he says, well, what about religion? As we think about God in all of his greatness, how do you approach? How can you manipulate, if you will, a God this big? That's what the other gods were for. When you had a a God over your nation, you would offer sacrifices. And because you gave the God this, then that God must bless you with good crops or with a, a large family, those types of things. So how or what do you approach God with? And I believe it's verse 16 that says that if you were to take all of the great wood, the the cedars of Lebanon, and use all of that wood from the entire nation and turn that into a great fire. And then we're to offer all of the beasts from Lebanon on that fire as an offering. It wouldn't be enough of a burnt offering in order to appease or manipulate the one true, great, powerful, vast God. Again, all of the illustrations and descriptions and word pictures will always fall short. God is so great. He is so big. He is so powerful. He is eternal. We cannot comprehend his greatness and his power, no matter how hard we try to think about it or what we try to compare him to. You can't describe it. I can only hope that with Isaiah, these images start to give us the smallest taste of how big our God is. And yet, it's not just the greatness, the power and might of God that Isaiah is concerned about in this image. In verse 10, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. It's that imagery of how God had set the Israelites free from their captivity in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But then it continues in verse 11 saying with those same powerful arms that had all of the plagues and divided the Red Sea. It says in verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. With that whole other thought, Isaiah introduces another, maybe more impossible idea. As indescribably great and mighty as our God is, as indescribably big and powerful is his being, that very same creator, powerful, mighty God relates to us like a shepherd relates to his sheep. Meaning he cares about you, his people. That he loves you and he wants to provide for you and make sure that you have what you need. He is knowing you and looking out 
for you. And like I alluded to, that, I think, is the most impossible concept for us to be able to wrap our minds around. The reconciliation and the combination of those two ideas that God is so great, so big, so unimaginably mighty. And yet, he treats you like a loving shepherd. I know I don't have words to describe that. But the only way we can truly understand that and imagine that is seeing once again how those promises were fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's true. In Isaiah 40, 16, it says that no sacrifice could be big enough to appease, to control our great and wonderful God. But then later in Isaiah 53, he would talk about a sacrifice. A sacrifice of one whose wounds would bring us healing. Whose death would bring us life. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. As Philippians 2 describes, he left the glories of heaven. He emptied himself and he humbled himself, taking on flesh and living among us. And when he lived among us in his teachings, he talked about himself and the Father like a shepherd. Saying that like a shepherd that had a hundred sheep, if one of them wandered off, he would leave the other 99. And because he loved each one of them individuals, he would pursue that one wandering sheep. Who talked about in John 10 being the good shepherd. Saying that if there was just a hired hand, if there was ever a threat to the animals, that hired hand would run away, run away and wander off themselves, protecting their own life. But he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that is exactly what he did for us. When he went to the cross and he laid down his life, sacrificing himself, paying the ultimate price, giving everything he could, his very existence, his life, shedding his blood in a torturous death, but doing so so that your sins could be forgiven, so that your relationship with God could be restored so that you could know him and live for him. And when he rose again from the grave, it was an evidence that he defeated sin and death and invites all who believe in him to know him and to know the promise of eternal life in him. Again, when you try to contemplate how great our God is and then imagine that he would come to this earth and do that for me, for you, there's no words. It's indescribable. And yet we got another little glimpse of it here this morning. As that great, wonderful, almighty, eternal God looked down on little Jaina Van Groningen. And he says, you're mine. I know you. And throughout your life, not a hair will fall from your head without it being my will. What a comfort. What an indescribable joy. 
So what do we do with that? Again, I could talk all day and I would never have the words to truly convey the depths of that kind of love. But I think there's only three things we can do in response to that. Number one is we contemplate that truth. I think it truly puts our problems into perspective. We worry about nations. We worry about creation and what's happening in our bodies at time to time. We worry about all of the things that are outside of our control. But then we recognize that all of those things are under the control of our great God. And our problems suddenly start to shrink. When we know him and we trust in him, we can have that comfort. That from the grand scheme of things, problems start to seem pretty small. But more importantly, there's an invitation to praise. If that great, incredible God knows you and loves you, the only thing we can do is to glorify him, to do all that we can to elevate his mighty, incredible name, not only in worship on Sundays, but in everything that we do throughout the week. Since God knows me, loves me, cares for me, I want to do all that I can every day to exalt his name and to encourage others to know him. And that's the third thing that we can do. It's the invitation at the beginning of the text to go and proclaim throughout the world, behold your God. We might not have the words to truly convey the truth of all of these incredible things, but our invitation is not just to know this, but to go and share that great news without fear and with confidence to a world that is confused and lost and to point them into the perspective and the picture of the great God in his greatness and his existence, but in the depth of his love for all those that believe in him. I hope today, in baptism, in the songs we have sung, in the listening of this text, we've gotten that little sample of the greatness of our God. And in having pictured it, we can just go to praise, proclaim the greatness of our God. Let's offer him a word of prayer. Father in heaven, it's amazing to contemplate the idea that we, simple small human beings are known by you. Father, as we get small glimpses of the greatness of this world, we know that nothing we see or experience can even come close to how incredibly wonderful and majestic you are. And as we try to contemplate that and mirror it, with the incredible idea that you love us like a shepherd and that you sent your son to give himself on our behalf. It is incomprehensible. But as much as we strive, O oh Lord, may the little glimpses of that truth that we get challenge and encourage us to praise you with all that we are. And may you, the holy God that you are, be exalted in everything that we do say, and may your name be proclaimed because of our actions. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your love to us. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.